Hi, everyone. Before we start the show, I just want to let you know that if you enjoy the Dare Daniel podcast, if you like the work we're doing here, you can help us grow the show by making a donation through the Dare Daniel website. Your generous contributions will help offset the cost of producing the show and will also enable long-term projects like producing additional content, creating merchandise, things like that. You can make a one-time payment or set up a monthly subscription. Any amount helps, and it's really greatly appreciated. Thanks a lot, and here's the show. Hello, members of an HOA. You're listening to the Dare Daniel Podcast, where you send us your most sinister movie dares, and we suffer the consequences for your sick and twisted amusement. I'm Corky McDonald, and I'm a product of suburbia. With me, as always, is my main man, Dan the Man, Daniel Barnes, film critic for the Sacramento News and Review, and a member of the San Francisco Film Critics Circle. Hi, everyone. As Corky said, on this show, we do your dirty work by watching the most unwatchable movies you can imagine. And then we review and rate them on our unique system. Your run-of-the-mill bad film, your everyday average watchable bad film, is a dare. We give a double dare to the truly atrocious movies, and we reserve the reverse dare rating for a despised movie that we actually kind of liked. Today on the podcast, we'll be reviewing George Clooney's 2017 obsidian dark comedy, Suburbicon, starring Matt Damon and Julianne Moore. But before we get started, Daniel also writes a craft beer column for the Sacramento Beer. So, Dan, fuck beer you bring us, boy. Tonight we have, wait for it, yet another beer from Revision Brewing. Oh, shit. We like Revision Brewing from Sparks, Nevada. It's, it's very good beer. Yet another uh, double IPA. This is a hazy double IPA called Glitter Moon, made with unicorns. Delicious, drinkable, juicy beer peach nectar, very soft bitterness, just an absolutely delicious beer, yet again from our friends at Revision. So why did Daniel and I dare ourselves to watch this movie? It's dare-worthy, especially for me, because this is the point of this podcast. It came out last year. It's fairly recent. Yeah, less than a year ago. tanked like a motherfucker. Oh, yeah. But everybody in it is somebody I'm drawn to. Like, huge. Yes, I'm way into the work that these people put out. And the movie coming out... In late October, with all of the stars and the director and the writers and everything, was obviously being positioned for awards as well. Um, and obviously, that also did not work out so well. So, yeah, I think uh, this is a very dare-worthy movie. Again, it's Suburbicon, directed by but not starring George Clooney, scripted by Joel and Ethan Cohen, and, and this is key, mm-hmm. and George Clooney and Grant Hesloff. Grant Hesloff is George Clooney's writing partner. It was released October 27, 2017, in a little over 2,000 theaters. Um, it received a 29 rating on Rotten Tomatoes, uh, audience score of 25, so the people hated it even more wow. than the critics did. 42 on Metacritic. Film opened in ninth place. Like I said, it opened on over 2,000 screens. The per screen average in its opening weekend was on par with the third week of The Foreigner. What's that? A film starring Jackie Ch- uh, Jackie Chan and <laughs> Pierce Brosnan that no Hold one on. saw. <laughs> Is Jackie Chan in that paired with somebody who's pretty uh, wildly opposite than Jackie Chan? Yes. Why? <laughs> Holy shit. No. Not paired exactly. But anyway. Oh. Let's not get too far into The Foreigner. That's for another show, Quirky. Yeah. Um, but uh, anyway, the film, besides tanking with critics, also tanked at the box office. Like we said, it grossed a little under $6 million against a budget of $25 million. And like we said, it stars uh, 
I don't think we did say it stars Matt Damon. It stars Julianne Moore. It stars Oscar Isaac. I mean, some of the best actors working today. And some wonderful character actors, people that you, when they pop up, you're like, oh, I like them. Yeah, that guy. Oh, yeah, yeah. he's in that show or whatever. Yeah. Um, but again, the movie tanked with audiences and critics, and a lot of the criticism was centered on the way that Clooney and Grant Hesloff grafted this sort of subplot that's based on a true story subplot about uh, racism in suburbia and then paired it with this pitch black murder comedy. And a lot of people thought that didn't work. Uh, what do you think? Did it work for you? I didn't mind it. I think what they did was pretty clever in highlighting the sick, twisted nature of suburbia and sick, twisted nature of Matt Damon's family in this uh-huh. movie with this really ideal, picturesque family who just happens, right. or their skin color is different. And that's the only thing that's quote unquote wrong with them. So did this movie work for you or was there something that didn't work? It wasn't, it, it worked, but it wasn't a great movie. Okay. It wasn't, it wasn't even necessarily that good of a movie, Right, but Mainly because I'm watching it thinking, oh, this could have been so much. Because I can see the Coen brothers writing in you there. You can see little touches on the, on the margins, kind yeah. of. Uh, there's, a, there's one or two even scenes, I would say, like, oh, man, that, that is, comes right out of you know the Coen brothers. Oh, script. totally. It has to. And, there, and then you can also see how the Coen brothers would have done it expertly. And right. I don't think Clooney and, and Heslov had the touch to make it that way. And that, to me, is the problem with the movie. And, and also, kind of... The center issue, and we'll kind of get to the making of the movie as we get into it, but I don't think that you need to know about how this movie came about to know that it's disjointed. Right. And to me, completely tone deaf. My largest issue with the film is is the tone of it, which I think is just utterly chaotic. And, yeah. and I, I, I feel like maybe the Coen brothers might have found a way to make this work in its original form. But I feel like Clooney is trying to do a lot of things here and not doing them well. And it's sort of like there's two movies that are instead of working together or commenting on each other, I think they're just consistently undermining each other. And like I said, we'll get into the backstory of the movie, but let's actually start with scene one of Suburbicon. Uh, we should mention, first of all, not only a great cast, also a really great crew yes. as well. Again, I, I feel this movie is a total failure to me, but I, it's not on the fact of like the uh, production values are bad. You've got director of photography Robert Ellswit, who has shot almost every Paul Thomas Anderson film. You've got editor Steven Marioni. Steven Soderbergh's go-to guy for so many years. Composer Alexander Desplat, who has done almost every Wes Anderson movie. You've got guys who work with great pedigree. filmmakers. You've got right? pedigree. Yeah, you've got guys who get nominated for awards every year. Yeah. All right, so let's get right into uh, the first scene of Suburbicon. So... The opening shot is kind of this deliberately old-fashioned thing, right? The opening sequence. You know, a lot of times if you go and watch a movie in the 40s and 50s, the opening credits will be somebody leafing through a book. Right. And it'll just, like, open the page to, like, the title of the film, and then the editor is on page two, whatever. So this is essentially what this does, right? It kind of opens up a book, and it's this sort of brochure for Suburbicon that comes to life. So, Corky, what is Suburbicon? Suburbicon is a neighborhood in Anyville, USA. They deliberately don't tell you where it is, but it tells you it's got a bunch of diversity and different people from New York and Florida and Mississippi, all white people with two children at least. There's very kitschy 1950s music. The graphics are very 1950s. The opening is telling you this is a stylized vision of 50s suburbia. Right. We cut from the book finally and then we kind of get into this like it's a fast-growing community in the suburbs they don't say where it is the real town this is based on was in pennsylvania now and then we get to the actual town 
And it's not really any different, right? Like it it's, looks it's just super like it. Pleasantville. It's yeah. Pleasantville, like you know, in color. Essentially. All the color. It's like the the neighborhoods from um, the movie with the scissors. Oh yeah, it's totally Edward Scissorhands. Yeah, it's absolutely. You made scissors with your hands to show me Edward Scissorhands. What's the movie where the guy has cutting utensils on his vestigial appendages? But his name is Edward. I can't. I don't know it. Uh, what is it? It's not Edward uh, Saw Feet. <laughs> Jesus. But yeah, so it looks just like the book. It looks like Edward Scissorhands' Neighborhood. The mailman is walking down the street, and kids are frolicking everywhere, and the music is just like dun 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 dun. Yeah. Dun, dun, See, this dun, worked dun, dun, for me oh, though. Jesus Christ, it, no. And here's it worked for me because the big reveal for, that everybody there's a new family in town. Everybody's talking about it, and then when the mailman sees that they are a black family moving in, and he sees a black woman at the door, and he says, "Well, you know, can you please bring Mrs. Myers down?" Mm-hmm. And she says, "I am Mrs. Myers," and right. he's like, "Lying." Yeah. So that whole thing is exactly it worked for me because it was leave it to beaver they were they he was george clooney i felt was sending up 50s television isn't that just so fucking crushingly easy though and that is this is movie like the satire quote i'm heavy air quote satire is just pound you over the head like it goes from here now to a town betterment committee meeting where all of the white citizens are. Before we get to that, and this is the capper to the point. Okay. That, the the punchline of the whole bit is that everybody now realizes there's a black family who moves in. Right. One woman didn't even park her car or didn't put her car in park, so it backs up and it hits the light post. And that's kind of like the capper scene of a 50s TV show. Yeah. And the sound of this betterment committee even underplays as if it's like a laugh track, applause track, right. and that's the it's end of it. It's still doing the dun 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 dun. Yes, dun, dun, and yeah. that, and from then on, we don't really do the kind of I love Lucy thing. But I don't know. It worked for me. I got what he but was we doing. Do sometimes. That's the thing. Is that the movie is so chaotic? It's mm-hmm. so all over the place. The tone. He can't find a single, single kind of through line to anything. And the way that he constantly uses the Myers family in the way that you're describing as basically a punchline to a scene. Or an ironic underpinning to a scene. I mean, the basic idea of the movie, from what I'm re- understanding it, is like when we get to Matt Damon's family and we get to some sort of the murder family, the murders going on and the lies and all of the deceit and everything that's happening in that film, that that's supposed to be sort of like, ooh, that's the dark underbelly of suburbia, right? But like, you know, what's a kind of a more potent symbol of the dark underbelly of suburbia is the thing you're treating as like a minor distraction, something as just like a plot point. Instead of actually developing that part of the story, it's just there as a distraction or a punchline. See, I thought they worked together to highlight. I thought that part were that is the lesser part of the story, but I thought that worked together to highlight this how sinister Matt Damon's family is. I guess so. So the Committee to celebrate diversity, or right? It's just a bunch of old white men. Yeah, it, it could not be on the more on the nose. These, these are like the most cartoonish racists yes. ever. Like literally, everyone look. I think has played like a, an orc or like a, a dwarf in a movie <laughs> or something. So they've all played a magical creature at some point. It's yeah. like three hundred Warwick Davises in one room. Yeah, so we cut now to Julianne Moore, who we see playing twins, Rose and Maggie. And Rose, oh shit. So here's what's confusing about Rose and Maggie. 
Rose is the blonde and Maggie is the redhead. For the first 20 minutes (laughs) of the movie. Which it seems like it should be reversed, but whatever. So Rose is a blonde. She is in a wheelchair. She's, we don't see Matt Damon yet, but she's Matt Damon's wife. Rose is her twin sister. Staying with them because Rose is in a wheelchair. Yeah, Rose is in a wheelchair. Maggie insists that Rose's son, Billy, Billy, go across the fence line and go play with the Myers kid. Right. Which he's kind of reluctant to do at first, and but he grabs his mint and he runs out and they go and play together. And everyone kind of sees them walking out together. And this seems to kind of be the the inciting incident yeah. of the film is like people seeing these kids walking together and playing together. This kind of seems to start driving everyone crazy. And you have a series of scenes that Clooney's saying there's nothing different between these two children. They dress exactly the same, the the young white kid and the young black kid. They dress they have both striped shirt with blue jeans on. They both play baseball. They come they talk for a second. They go to play baseball together. They both aren't really the religion, the dominant religion in the neighborhood. That night when they go to bed, they're both listening to the same scary radio program with their sheets clutched up. So it's it's telling you they're just like us right i mean that's <laughs> which it's just like that's the fucking message of this movie it is so pandering it is so pandering like fuck <laughs> all right so that night yes both of the kids are in bed but one of the kids billy the white kid gets woken up and there's a figure in the doorway and he you, says there are men in the house you still don't see matt damon you still don't see matt damon they're walking downstairs and a lot of the stuff when when the child is on scene they are from his point of view and this is kind of one of them because we're Walking down the stairs, and we're seeing Maggie and Rose at the table, and we're seeing two men at the table, and we're not—we can't see the father yet because he's kind of above Billy's eye. There's a there's a chimney in the middle of the downstairs that kind of acts as a symbolic view blocker. Billy doesn't see a lot of dirty shit that happens behind that. Also, the camera heights also kind of convey his view. Right. He, he's he's young. He still lives in a kid's world, but he's brought downstairs. Some men have now broken in and take the family hostage. Yeah. There's a home invasion. There's kind of a tense. Again, every time I use an adjective, just imagine air quotes, a quote unquote tense scene involving the robbers where Matt Damon, the father who is named, I don't know if we find this out of video, but his name is such a Coen Brothers name, (laughs) Gardner Lodge. Gardner Lodge is a hell of a Gardner Lodge. That's a Coen Brothers name. And and another amazingly Coen Brothers uh, moment later in the film, someone mistakes him for Jewish because of the name Lodge. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, that's how fucking white this fucking place is. Yeah. They... It's a home invasion, but they're making Matt Damon make them drinks and yeah. bring it to him on a tray, and it's this kind of drawn-out scene. And eventually, they tape them all to chairs at the table and chloroform them to knock them out. And we see Rose get knocked out first, yeah, and then the kid, and then we see Maggie. And just as the kid is kind of dozing off, he sees... No, sorry. But you miss a little backstory because Maggie is apparently in her wheelchair because of Gardner getting in a car accident. Yeah, for some reason. Okay. She's pissed For about reasons it. that when we know who these robbers are make absolutely no sense, they decide to prod Maggie for her backstory. <laughs> no, they decide to prod Rose for her. Fuck, Maggie, oh, this is so confusing. <laughs> they decide to prod Rose, who is in the wheelchair and who is Matt Damon's wife. They're like, tell us why you're in the wheelchair. We want to know. And so she developed, uh, delivers some very handy plot information that needs to be there, which is that... The, She's like, honey, get the book. Get yeah, the book. Right. Show, show them the book. <laughs> which is that Gardner Lodge was driving the car, had an accident, and she was uh, paralyzed below the waist. Yeah. So Rose is not a happy person. She's all, she's pretty miserable as it comes in. She just seems very discontent. And the kid, just as he's about to pass out, he sees Rose getting kind of an extra dose. Yeah, they go back for Rose. Too much. They go back and they give her some more, and he, then he passes out. Yeah. So one of the bad guys is played by one of those 
kind of guys that I mentioned earlier that you really like. Uh, he's uh, the bad guy in Barry, HBO's Barry. He was also the killer at the end of True Detective, spoiler alert. <laughs> and he played another role that I really liked really recently. Is but this he, the big guy? Yes, yeah. I think he was on Boardwalk Empire, maybe. Oh, he was on board. He's good. I he's, like Yeah, him. he's just a solid character yeah. actor type. Have you seen Barry? I haven't seen Barry. Watch Barry. All right. It's pretty fun. I'll check it out. So, <laughs> should we have the show there? <laughs> Billy wakes up in the hospital, and then we have the funeral for his mother. Yeah, we're at the funeral. Can we talk about the music? I mean, this is the insane satire and the tone of this movie, how crazy it is, because like it is constantly overbearing in okay. every single scene. It, it, again, the dink, 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 dink stuff, and uh, the when a scene gets very tense, it just goes completely over the top. I don't know, Alexander Despot... I'm getting super nerdy for film score people, but he's very kind of referency sort of, uh, he's always kind of cutesy. Okay. And I think he was just the wrong guy to do this. Like Carter Burwell, who is the Coen brothers guy, like could have done this and given it some heft and, and nuanced it in the right way. But like, again, nuances are not what this movie does. <laughs> we meet uncle Mitch, who is the, the brother of Rose and Maggie. And he's embodies the fifties uncle. Yeah. Like, he's know, a big lug. Yeah. Stiff off her lip, don't cry, that kind of stuff. Yeah. But he loves the kid. You can see he has a genuine affection for the kid. Absolutely. Gives him, makes him take all his money in his pockets and then holds him upside down and jingles him. Jingles him all again. Yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> so the kid, uh, Billy, is kind of observing as now... Maggie. Maggie, right? Yes. No, shit. Maggie? Faux Rose. Maggie, yeah. yes. Maggie is getting closer to Gardner. They seem to be getting very intimate. She says that she's going to come live with them. Which had got to be a mind fuck for that kid. Well, sure. My mom's twin sister now sticks around after she's dead. <laughs> Absolutely. And acts as my husband, my, not my husband, my father's caregiver. Exactly. People are kind of blaming the fact that there's crime in suburbia on the fact that, of course, the Myers are there. Yes. And we've never had a black family before and we've never had these issues in suburbia before. And this is where you start seeing not everything is right with this Lodge family. Whereas this other family's getting looked at, stared, and gossiped about for doing nothing wrong. Yeah, absolutely. So from here on out, we kind of cut back and forth. We yes. stick mainly with the Matt Damon and the Billy and Julianne Moore and all that kind of stuff. We just kind of jump back for like 30 seconds to the to the Myers, and the crowd is like intensifies, right? At right. first, there's a few people standing outside. Then there's people shouting. Then there's more. Then there's more. And every time we cut back, it's just more, and it's but kind right of now, they're just reaching kind of... a fever pitch. But right now, it's like a, a few people are kind of gathering. Yeah. Right now, we get another great Coen Brothers name as Gardner Dodge goes back to work and gets a call from- Gardner Dodge. <laughs> is this not- Lodge, baby. <laughs> Is that Jewish name, Dodge? Yeah. <laughs> he gets a call from Captain Gail Hightower. Yeah. Gail Hightower gives him a call and tells him to come on down. He found two perps that he thinks are pretty suspicious. And so I think one of the worst parts of this movie and the weakest parts of this movie is it telegraphs what would be in a Coen Brothers movie an oh shit plot twist. Right. Uh, holy cow. But you see them coming. Heslov and Clooney can't handle this. Yeah, this is what I was, and this is another thing that drove me crazy about this movie, is like the inability to like build suspense. Like it's obvious they're trying to do a Hitchcockian kind of a thing. Even the music is just constantly pounding in that Bernard Herrmann sort of way. It's almost like a parody. The thing about Hitchcock was that he would give you enough information. He would give you the, he would often give the viewer more information than the people on screen. Yeah. To the point that you are sort of completely in what's happening and you're almost kind of rooting for it you know what i mean yeah it's beautifully put and the issue here is that we get enough to know that yeah it's pretty obvious that 
Rose and, and uh, Gardner Lodge had had Maggie killed, and when, this is all part of a plan. When did you know? Like, literally, it, as soon as I saw her getting the extra dab, as soon as I saw her getting the extra dab, I was like, oh, oh well, yeah, he's a murderer. Yeah, oh, like, okay. literally nothing else makes sense. I didn't know that quick. I, I knew it when the cops said, we pulled these guys over, but they have they, you, they didn't steal anything? Because they had a lot of money on them. I'm like, oh, they were paid. Yeah. yeah that's why. And, and more more of these kind of telegraph twists come from... But the, the frustrating thing, like I said, is that it's enough to telegraph it, but it's not enough, again, to make us feel, like, complicit in yeah. Maggie's... Roses? Fuck. Maggie's death. Um, we don't fully understand what happens, but we know just because it's clumsily handled, you know what I mean? Yeah. So the suspense never builds. No. Tension doesn't really build because we always just know what is absolutely going to happen. Matt Damon, Gardner Lodge, goes in to identify. He brings in Julianne Moore, who is Maggie, and she accidentally brought the kid because he insisted he wanted to come down. He demands the kid stays outside. And it's you know they're going to be in there in the lineup. Yeah. He insists he does not see them even though they're standing right there. But, well, as it's the kid kind yeah. of sneaks in behind them, this is and so they dumb. don't notice that he's behind them. And so he's, dumb. Again, it's kind of from his point of view because he's looking around the bodies of his of Matt Damon and Julianne Moore, and oh, he sees one guy, sees one, and then at the end you see, okay, well, there's a those are the two robbers right yeah. there. So let me ask you this: Why would you give an accurate description? <laughs> 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 because we find out in this scene, the lights flip on. Yeah. Somebody like bumps into the lights, they flip on. No, the cop just turns around and goes, all right, we're done, and turns it on. Right, that's right. Now that we know that Matt Damon hired these people, why did you give an accurate description? (laughs) If if it was because, oh, well, the kid saw them too, then why didn't you blindfold the kid? Yep. Why didn't why why didn't you do like a million things? That, or you know what really would have drove it in this movie if he would have said, "Oh, those two black guys." Yeah, it, I mean, right? That's it, that, right there. That actually fits in with the theme of the movie. Yeah, again, yeah. this is just it's such a frustrating movie. Should have got the guy from Goodfellas who got his truck robbed. <laughs> we have a bathtub scene, which is a really awkward. This kid could act. I like this kid. The kid is good. Yeah, the kid is good. He's just sitting there contemplating in the bathtub about why did my dad lie you know and matt damon comes in and just is a piece of shit yeah i love matt damon he's one of my favorite i really like him as an actor yeah i like him he chose made a weird choice for this for me yeah he plays every scene very stead he never knows he's wrong or never knows he's in the in the wrong or plays any kind of doubt yeah he's just like a stressed angry guy yeah you can't be menacing the entire time yeah and that's an that's an issue too i think is that matt damon's character has like no dynamism at all like the first time that we meet uh rose and maggie maggie and rose Rose, (laughs) they're talking about how gardner you know gardner's saying that these this family is gonna tank the property values right so it's not as though he was sort of espoused some kind of like positive philosophy on civil rights and, no. and and integrated housing or anything like that. Like he was just a racist at the start and he's a racist at the end and there's no journey at all. No, yeah. Julianne Moore now dyes her hair blonde. So she's single white female. She's female. totally just turning right into her. <laughs> this poor kid would have to be like, what the fuck? Yeah, and the kid is kind of becoming better friends with the Myers kid. Yes. Um, but he comes home one day and he sees military academy brochures. 
<laughs> on the table. Annie catches uh, Matt Damon and Julia Moore in the basement having... Fifty Shades of Ping Pong? Having 50s kinky sex because they're having sex in the basement, but he's slapping her with a ping pong racket. <laughs> just, just like, oh, let's just throw some like, goofy slapstick we sex gotta have in here. Rec it's, room sex. It's like, what? No, but this kid was good because of the light cord is swinging and he just grabs it silently yeah. and clicks it again. End of scene. But that, that sex scene couldn't be any more 50s if he was smacking her with TV dinner trays. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Shooting a fake cowboy gun in the air (laughs) so we see that as a supposed compromise that the housing association is going to be putting fencing up around this black family's house so they're just building a large fence so okay well you just don't have to look at them you know and but this is only seeming to drive people crazier so they're they're outside playing drums yeah they're shouting they're screaming this is like all hours of the night as as well and billy and we don't ever think learn the myers kid's name but billy and the myers kid are in we don't learn anything about the myers the father i don't think has a single line that's true he doesn't have a line the mother has a few lines that that are very innocuous do you think that's symbolic do you think there's there was some george clooney not caring about them yes (laughs) i do i was just wondering i was trying to give him credit for trying something like you know, black men had no voice. I, just, I think he just didn't want to touch it. I, I think just, he just didn't want to touch it. And, and this is my a, yeah. Let's this get, is maybe is a good time to get into okay. like w- how this movie started. So from what I understand, it actually started as a Coen Brothers script that they wrote back in like the Blood Simple days. It's like a super early, and you can kind of feel it around the margins. Like, Absolutely, elements of Fargo, elements of Blood Simple, Miller's elements of even. Man Who Wasn't There. Yeah. Every choice you make leads to several more bad choices. The characters, the kind of the like I said, the stylization of it is is very Coen Brothersy. So like the kind of the 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 makeup of it is, but it was really just the story about the family. It, it didn't it didn't have anything about this the Myers family. That wasn't an element of the story, as far as I can understand it. Clooney, I believe, had bought the scripts and was they were ready to make it when they were working together, Cohen and the Cloonies, and that just never happened. Fast forward to 2016, the election's happening, lots of talk about racism, immigration, things happening in the heartland. Clooney wants to make a kind of historical drama about the Myers family, the real Myers, life Myers family, who was a family in Pennsylvania. It was a suburb called Levittown, Pennsylvania, uh, built in the late 50s, and they did not sell to African-American families, and that was like in the housing compact. Um, but a Jewish family in 1959 sold their house to a family called the Myers, an African-American family. They moved in and faced the kind of harassment, racism, people outside their house, rioting, throwing rocks through their windows. And in the film... Like I said, there's the Myers family. It's spelled differently, though. Okay. Their Myers is like with an A in the in the film. But you also the language from uh, the Betterment Committee that we heard at the for their petition at the beginning was the exact language of a petition given to them. That Betterment Community language. Yeah. I was like, that is parody because yeah. it's so on the nose, ridiculous. Absolutely. Yeah. That's crazy. No, it is. So essentially, what what Clooney felt like, okay, I think he felt like, I can't make this movie. Like, I don't know how to make this movie about the Myers and to make I it in a, in a good way. It. I shouldn't make it. But what he did was he essentially grafted it on to the Coen Brothers script sure. and added it as sort of like a subplot, I think. Yeah. And again, this is where it just really doesn't work for me uh, because I feel like it, it is just something kind of thrown in there callously and kind of thoughtlessly. It got. I kind of got more annoyed again, and it, it just feels like a completely different movie when it goes to the Myers. It, it has sort of more of a docudrama feel. I absolutely. And then all of that, a sudden, yeah. it gets very like over the top, almost comedic when the, we go back to the Lodge family. And the best parts of that whole Myers interaction with the other family is the kids. It's the two boys. Yeah. So like 
like the part we're getting at when it's it's reaching this big crescendo. There's drums. There's everybody parking out there. There, the two boys are playing in the bomb shelter, peeking out. Right. And he says, "My dad says, don't show nothing." Right. And Billy gets the idea. I'm gonna take his advice, and then again, it's just like the the equating there yeah. is just a little disturbing to me. Y- using that story to tell to help tell this weird as twisted. just as just like a motivator for Billy, right? I gotcha. I might comes down to you know if you're gonna do that story do it and do it right don't just toss it off like this yeah it, it just feels really slapdash uncle mitch is you can see is the one person who really cares about this right. kid because he's really concerned he wants to come visit him but gardner poopoo's the idea billy calls his uncle mitch to tell him they're gonna kill me this they killed mom they're gonna kill me he's figured it out but the secretary takes the call and hears the little kid and leaves the message mrs lodge called Right. The identity is given away through accident and good intentions because Mitch calls Uncle Mitch calls back and talks to the dad and is like, "Oh my God, I got a weird call." And said, "Mrs. Uh, my heart skipped a beat," you know. And the dad pieces it together that my kid's calling now. Oh, okay. Right. You know? Got it. <laughs> I don't even have that in my notes. I don't think. Uh, so the cop who had walked them through the lineup, Gail Hightower, Gail Hightower, uh, comes case. back to Gardner Lodge's office where he is like stressed out like crazy. He's like squeaky, squeaky, squeaky. Those little stress ball things. Everyone walks up to him and says that they're sorry. So he is like, he's barely keeping it together is what it seems like. The cop comes in and says that a gangster died in a car accident. As it turns out, this is not one of any of the gangsters that we've met. But <laughs> in the gangster's notes was Gardner Lodge's name. And Damon says, I don't Do know. Do you know Frank Rizzoli? And he's like, I don't know. Frank, Frank Rizzoli. Rizzoli. And he just pleads innocence, right? Even though he's pretty much dead to rights at this point, right? Yeah. Who's Gardner Lodge? And the cop, after you know, standing there for like 10 seconds and staring at him, says, all righty, and takes off. Yeah. Now, now we go back to the home where... Oscar Isaac? Rose. Okay. <laughs> Maggie come Rose. It's now Maggie Maggie as, as right. Rose. <laughs> Sorry. She's taken the Rose profile. Maggie is visited by none other than Bud Cooper, aka Oscar Isaac. Oscar Isaac. He's a life insurance man. He's looking like a Voltec rep from Fallout 4. He he looks actually a lot like George Clooney from Intolerable Cruelty. He he's does. very slick. He's got a little pencil mustache. He's very he's a little unctuous. Yeah. He's a little forward. And it, yeah, it's very much not a woman's world because he just comes right into. He the just house. walks right in. Yeah, he's talking about the insurance claim, and he's saying, "Oh, everything's fine," but there's just quote little red flags. Um, and while all this is going on, we can kind of hear like in the background the din of the crowd, which is just getting louder and louder and louder as this entire like day kind of goes on. Yeah, and again, these mo- this movie with the plot twists that you think are going to be plot twists, they're not really plot twists. They're kind of like. I don't know, what's the opposite of twist? A plot laid out straight for you to see for eons. <laughs> the plot horizons is what they are. This scene starts with her cleaning her sink with lye. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, I bet that's going to come back. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> it's like Chekhov's gun or whatever. <laughs> Chekhov's lie. He reveals to her, this case stinks. Yeah. I smelled it coming off the freeway, and I got a big one here. Yeah. And again, plot horizons. I know the second he's talking like that, he doesn't give a shit about the insurance claim. Mm-hmm. Telling his boss, yeah. he's going to come back to for a payoff. Absolutely, he tells her, "Tell your husband I'll be back tonight." Yeah, we see that the bad guys are actually bus drivers and the uh, fat bad guy. We should say that they came to visit Gardner Lodge at his office and beat him up. Yeah, made him look like Ed Norton in Fight Club at the office. Yeah, uh, the, just before the cop showed up, I believe too. Right? Yes, because he still had a scar on his face, and they all, we guys. also find out that you know, a they're pissed off because all three of them saw him in the lineup. They're also pissed off because Gardner hasn't paid them his money. Yeah. 
Very Lundegaard. Very Lundegaard. It is, right? Yeah, but bad. <laughs> no, yeah, I'm not comparing this movie to Fargo in <laughs> no any way. way. So they, he, they decide they're going to go kill both Rose and Nikki. Right. Going to kill the, wife, the new wife and the kid. Billy. Billy. Why did I Nikki? It is Nikki. Nikki. I swear they called him Billy at least once. Yeah. Billy. We called him Billy a few times. We call him Rose and Maggie, too. <laughs> Billy Nikki. No one cares. Um, so yeah, the plan now is to bump off Rose and Nikki. Meanwhile, the crowd just absolutely turning into a mob. The music score is losing its mind right now. It is just crashing and crashing and building and crescendo. And this is supposed to represent the inner turmoil of Matt Damon and the hidden turmoil behind every suburban house door. Yeah. So later that night, Gardner Lodge is at home. Uh, the claims investigator, Oscar Isaac, comes back to blackmail. He has an amazing seed where he sits down. And just as they're about to begin, uh, he says, hey, hey, how about a cup of coffee? <laughs> and they're like, this movie is so fucking dumb. Do you have any next to the lie that no, you're No, I know. It's, it's like, it, we've seen a movie before, right? Yeah. Like, he basically just said, hey, sweetheart, you can bring me a big cup of poison. <laughs> any poison will do it. It matter this time of night. Can I? You got a couple of knives? I'm going to be up all night. You got some poison. I want to gargle a knife. (laughs) This is the, again, this is the... They can't handle it. Telegraphed it, but you fucked it up because we don't see her put lie into it, but they still do the whole, like, Oscar Isaac, like, putting it to his lips, about to do it, but then no, interrupts himself and talks, and he does that a few times as well. Yeah. And surprise, surprise, he drinks it, and guess what happens? He (laughs) chokes and screams and does an entire slapstick over the top death. He runs out the gate. Runs out of the... He he basically just, like, screams to the heavens and, like, rips his, like... His coat, and he runs out of the runs out of the front door. And Matt Damon chases him down, and we get another kind of burn after reading callback where he, instead of a hatchet, he kills him in the middle of the street with a fireplace. Bubble. Yeah, <laughs> and nobody notices because everyone is riding over behind them at the Myers house. So he goes off to d- uh, ditch the body. He says to Julianne Moore, "We got to split." I'm not even calling her Rose or Maggie anymore. Yeah, no, <laughs> like, fuck it. We're gonna split the one that's alive right now. She now decides that she's going to kill Nikki. Yeah. She takes a whole bottle of... She just says it's falling apart. Yes. She's lost it. Um, Matt Damon is going to go off and hide the body, and she starts making a poison peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Such a Mrs. Cleaver way of killing somebody. And poison milk. And tries to call Nikki down for it. He says, I won't eat it. Yeah. As she's doing that, bad guy, skinny bad guy sneaks into the house, and she knows she's going to die. She turns around starts... Doing her uh, somewhere that's green, Audrey too, kind of <laughs> <laughs> reminiscing about the vacation they were going to take, and he garrots her and strangles her in the house. Yeah, this was probably the most successful yeah. page to screen kind of thing, and it felt the most Coen Brothersy because the way it starts is she's facing one direction, and you just hear a voice, and then you see a close up on him, and he's facing the same direction, and the the understanding of space is like kind of slowly builds through the editing and through the sound yeah. and then it ends with the murder but it's all done as shadows on the wall so it's done in this very cinematic way i will say that i thought like we've kidded a lot about this movie but i thought this kind of 15 minute 20 minute really worked for me i thought the pacing was good and especially culminating in the in the attempt of the kid's life under the bed i thought that was a really well done shot real series of shots yeah i agree i agree as well i just i i don't know I, the the entire concept of the movie is just yeah. a lot for me to overcome and and i was just getting more and more annoyed as the riot was getting kind of more frenzied and more realistic yeah um, matt damon yeah i got you yeah matt damon goes to take away the body and he gets followed by a vw bug with fat bad guy skinny bad guys creeping up the stairs to kill the little kid yeah 
and a good sequence of shots of the kids hiding under this bed like a little kid would, and he only sees feet, and Uncle Mitch, you know who it is, comes yeah. to save the day. There's a fight. There's a fight, and all it's just see feet. All, all under the bed, yeah. And you're hearing sounds, and yeah. it's kind of Miller, wow, Miller's Crossing, yeah. kind of like uh, Albert Finney style. Yeah, I know, right? If this kid would have Tommy gun the whole place. <laughs> that would have fixed everything. I was While like, Danny Boy plays, oh my God. <laughs> Um, but yeah, Uncle Mitch to the rescue. He yep. pulls up the bed. He takes the kid out. He puts him in the closet, gives him a gun, and he walks away. And then we see that Uncle yep. Mitch has a knife in the back. He sits down to call and then See dies. Right. Yeah. We're now with Matt Damon ditching the body. He's ditching the body in a series of new homes. It's more symbolism that you can't escape the rot from the beginning of suburbia. Sure. But again, you know, it's a way better symbol of the rot of suburbia is the thing that is just happening down the street. <laughs> like these aren't commenting on each other at I, all. I get you. He pulls a bike out of the trunk and he's riding the bike home. And again, this and is a, kind of slapsticky. Yep. It's a kid's bike. And he's, it's funny because he's riding a, Child's bike. I can't help but think the Coen brothers would have made this scene work or something like this work. And this is a really awkward scene. The staging in this is so awkward. The main kind of uh, the killer from the the opening scenes of the home invasion, fat bad guy, (laughs) fat bad guy from Boardwalk Empire, we think. I think so, yeah. He had to be in... Whatever. He was in Boardwalk Empire. They were all in Boardwalk Empire. He's been in every other HBO show. So he's riding back home. The fat back guy has tailed him, watches him dump the body and does all that and just kind of watches him silently. Yeah. And then as he's riding home, he pulls up alongside him, drives alongside him and decides to taunt him. Yeah. <laughs> for like no reason. <laughs> and it's just like, oh, you're going to see a surprise when you get home. You're going to see a surprise. Hey, 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 ask me what I did to your wife and yeah. kid. Ask me what I did. <laughs> no, right? Because like, I killed him. Yeah. Oh, I told you. <laughs> it's okay. Ask me again. Ask and me Matt again. David is like, what did you do? What did you do? And the music music crescendos and gets so blaring loud that neither of them hear a fire truck engines blaring coming directly towards them and it smashes right into the car yeah damon whooshes right by him not hurt into the car flips over gas comes out explosion boom everyone's dead right uh uh, uh Pitch black night, no lights in the in empty suburbia. <laughs> it came out of nowhere. A fire truck with again, that has more lights than most. The cars. soundtrack was so loud, no one could hear anything. Matt Damon gets back home uh, to find everybody, everyone dead, dead. except for Nikki uh, Billy, little, little Nikki. Yeah, uh, who points the gun at him? He easily takes away the gun, brings I, him. I thought we were gonna have a burn after reading Brad Pitt coming out of the closet. I know, right? <laughs> but no. Um, but yeah, he brings him downstairs, sits him down at the dinner table, pulls himself up a poison PB&J. Yeah, and milk. And some poison milk as well. Wash it down. Yeah. What was that? What was she using in there that was so flavorless was... that he ate like 20 pills worth of it yeah. without even noticing? Yeah, I was going to say that. What is this? Chalk gif? She like <laughs> she like crushes up an entire like bottle of pills or yeah. something like that, right? But and lays it all over the entire sandwich and in the milk and spoons it around in the milk so it's all perfectly even. He does not notice. Eats the entire thing while delivering, of course, a self-righteous and a very wrong-headed of, from coming from him. Yeah, uh, he threatens speech. his child. Yeah, but first he gives him a speech about responsibility and about stability and things like that. And then maybe this is what's even more frustrating because like the fucked up like symbolism and themes of this movie and shit like that the first thing he does when they sit down is he says i don't want you playing with that black kid colored boy yeah Yeah, Yeah. i don't want you playing with that colored boy and it's like 
what the fuck was the journey? Again, there's no journey there. If he had maybe started at like, you kids, could, he was the one who said go play together. Again, like, this movie is just so disjointed. I it's, think they really needed to show you that he was really a bad guy. They needed to really <laughs> underline, okay? Like, murdering the wife and like everything else. Like, nah. Oh, God. So, are we almost at the end of this thing? Yes, we are. He eats his skippy with Tylenol. The next morning, its sun is shining. Yeah, it's sort of the scene ends. He, he, he wants the, to make a deal with his son. He talks about making a deal. Sort of threatens him a little bit. Says, let's make a deal. He even mentions Aruba, which he had mentioned to Rose yeah. about, like, where well, we're going to run away to no, Aruba. No, he doesn't sort of threat. He tells him, or I could kill you. Yeah, or I could kill you. And say they did it. And the next morning, of course, Matt Damon is dead he at the table. Up, he slumped at the table. He's at the table. The kid's watching Saturday Night Cartoons, or Saturday Morning Cartoons. Saturday Night Cartoons would have been cool, though. Uh <laughs> Uh, they're cleaning up at the house. There's news crews there. Um, you know, the residents, again, are saying none of this has ever happened before and talking about all the hysteria and moral outrage. And this is where we actually see some like news footage of... Was that real? I thought That so. was real. And then it was also reenacted as well okay. with an actor. Um, and uh, the kid is watching TV. Gardner's dead at the tenil- uh, table. And he just goes outside to play ba- baseball with the kid. And what do they do? Him and him and the Myers boy, they throw the ball. But where do they throw it, Quirky? Across the fence? They throw it over the fence. <laughs> Fuck <laughs> this movie. <laughs> so that is Suburbicon. Suburbicon. And I should say that while they're throwing the ball over the fence, the soundtrack is once again yeah, losing it, its fucking mind. It's it pretty big. It, it just nonstop is crescendoing. Yeah, it's just completely insane. Um, so quirky. Obviously, I think we had a little bit of a difference of opinion. I think we agreed on some of the issues of the movie. But, yeah. Um, for me, if we're going to rate them, and let me remind people about our rating system, your average run-of-the-mill bad movie, that's a dare watchable bad uh, unwatchable bad, a truly atrocious movie. That's a double dare. And if you like the movie, we give it a reverse dare. I'm going to go with a double dare. Oh, wow. I, f- I, I can see some of the things you're talking about. And there's obviously, there's something in here that, that is interesting and that can work. And I usually like to think, okay, man, I, I want to reward ambition. Yeah. I don't know if I would be rewarding ambition here because again, like uh, the, the, uh, the balls of adding the Meyer story to just like a, a, dark comedy okay that's one thing but it it doesn't really feel ambitious it feels very slapdash it feels very forced and uh again it just didn't work for me so it was a hard hurdle to get over because it's not like that's a part of the film that you can ignore Mm. i'm gonna go reverse there because you should watch this movie there's enough of it that works for me i didn't see the myers story as always a negative to addition to this movie i would like to support more movies that do these kind of things. However, I will say this movie is like why a white guy shouldn't have made or a white guy shouldn't attempt to make a movie like Get Out. You know what I mean? Like sure. this is what you're going to get. Yeah. It's focused on the white family when, like you say, everything that you could have used for a horror story, for a dark, uh, not comedy, but a dark story was right there happening across the street. Yeah. Which and he I, did. He wasn't deft enough to balance that. Exactly. And that's the issue to me is, is just, it's just poorly directed, honestly, at the center, because I can't really bl- blame the craftsmen because they're all extremely good. Like the X Factor here is George Clooney and, and Grant Heslov, and I don't think they do a very good job. I would love to see a story about the Myers. It could even be a comedic story about the Myers. Something human and something interesting and something that actually like gets into their story, but I feel just like throwing it in as like flavor in this kind of ugly um, and not very well-made uh, dark murder comedy 
just felt tasteless to me. It was, it was just hard to get over. Gotcha. So that's all we have for you on this episode of Dare Daniel, but we'll be back next week to review another one of your movie dares. That's right, another goddamn dare. In the meantime, check out our Thursday mini episode. Check those out for previews of the next Dare Daniel review, as well as post-mortems and more talk about your dares and movies in general. Until then, send your most sadistic or altruistic. Maybe you want to... Maybe want a reverse dare. We need a double reverse dare one of these days. Hasn't happened yet. Uh, be sure to follow Dare Daniel Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Like and rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can read more of my movie reviews in the Sacramento News Review and at newsreview.com. And you can read my craft beer column in the Sacramento Bee and at sacb.com. Corky. Corky, son of a gun. Where can people find more of your work? You leave suburbia. You leave the trappings, the twisted, nasty, dark trappings of suburbia. And you come down to Midtown, Jane 20th, Lavender Heights District. Come and see me perform at the Sacramento Comedy Spot, Jane 20th. And speaking of Lavender Heights, it's Pride Month. Happy Pride Month, everybody. Yeah, absolutely. But will it be when this airs? Nope. I also, feel like every month is Pride Month. I celebrate it all the time. I mean, God damn it. Yeah. That's such a better line. I than celebrate nope. it more than you. I celebrate gay pride more than you. I celebrate Prider Month. It's on it's on the record right now. Proudest month, motherfucker. So fuck. <laughs> so for Dare Daniel, I'm Daniel Barnes. Our producer is Johnny Suburbicock Flores. <laughs> And I'm Corky McDonald saying, Suburbicon.